Welcome to the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders get clarity on how to align sales and marketing, build a high-performing revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth for their organizations. I'm your host, Jeff Davis, author of award-winning book, Create Togetherness, and founder of Rev Engine. Let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, it is Jeff Davis, and welcome to another episode of the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders strategically align sales and marketing, build a high-performing revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth. I'm excited. Our guest today is none other than the Tracy Eiler that we all know and have come to love for her prowess as a CMO leader. A couple things about her before we dive into the conversation. Uh, she's been a CMO multiple times, multiple times over in tech and SaaS and some other, other industries, which we'll get into. She's also the author of the book, Align to Achieve, which inspired me to write my book, Create Togetherness. So maybe we'll also talk about that. It was really, really inspirational to read her book and know that a CMO really got this functional relationship between sales and marketing and had some some very thoughtful approaches on how to fix it and make it better. She's also been named one of the 15 most influential women in B2B marketing, and it's also on the board for women in revenue. So hopefully in the back end, we'll get to talk a little bit about that and some of the work that you you great ladies are doing over there. But before we dive into the conversation, Tracy, I want to give you uh, a chance to introduce you to the audience for those that don't know you and maybe share a little bit about your, your personal background and your journey to where you are today. Well, Jeff, thank you for the invitation. I'm thrilled to be here and I'm so excited to finally talk to you again face to face. It's been so long and, you know, congratulations on your book. Thank you. Such a big project. And, and I love that you and I are so kind of spiritually aligned, like brother and sister from another mother kind yeah, of situation yeah. <laughs> with what we care about. Um, so there's a little known fact about me and how I started my career, Jeff, that you probably do not know, which is I started my career as a sales development rep. Uh, and this was back in the mid 80s. So this is like pre email before there was anything like Marketo before there was, you know, uh, even really internet that was used by businesses. But I worked in a software company that was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, I was 16 years old, and there were four high school kids that were the SDRs for the software company, we answered the phone, there was an 800 number that they put on all their print ads followed up on all the trade show leads. And every one of us went by the same name, which was Chris Kelly. Because, you know, Chris never got sick. Chris never <laughs> went away to college, etc. And that was my kind of first glimpse into what B2B sales and marketing could be and mm-hmm. led to my kind of inspiration really to when I graduated, moved to Silicon Valley and start my career in tech. And I have to tell you that, you know, the SDR function, I think it's one of the hardest jobs, if not the hardest job in a company for a bunch yeah. of reasons that we'll talk about. And I just have such a passion for, you know, anybody that's starting their career in that role. Yeah, I love it. Since that time, I spent 30 years in marketing leadership uh, roles leading up to CMO roles for really the last 12 years or so. Yeah. And almost all enterprise SaaS companies, some with mid-market motions. And, you know, it's been a wonderful ride. And I have a lot of passion for, you know, what folks in our industry are, are really trying to do and get their companies to the next stage of growth. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that because I actually did not know you started your sales, your career in sales. And so maybe that is why you have an informed uh, viewpoint on how uh, as a marketing leader, you should be engaging with sales. And so that's why I've come to love your perspective, your work, because, you know, this platform is all about creating cross-functional relationships, better cross-functional relationships yes. and thinking yes. holistically about the revenue engine. So I knew that you having you on the show would be a great asset to those that want to think differently about how they work with sales. So with that in mind, 
two of the things I talk about a lot when we talk about this whole you know sales and marketing alignment thing and building a more aligned revenue engine is there really two transformations that have to happen simultaneously, which makes this work tough, right? There is the transformation of marketing itself and really responding to the needs, wants, desires, demands of the modern buyer. The other one would be, of course, the alignment of sales and marketing and, and customer success if you have that. And those in and of themselves are challenging, but doing them both at the same time is even more challenging. But what I'd love to get your perspective on as a marketing leader is really talking about what does it take to be a modern marketing organization and really step up to the plate of what the modern customer buyer is demanding? What looks different than it did five, 10 years ago? Yeah. And you know, you bring up the point that is the point, which is the buyer is different. The buyer is a very modern, extremely informed buyer that has expectations, whether they are in their B2C life, buying sneakers or buying a house or buying a car or in their B2B life where they're making a, you know, multi hundred thousand dollar or, or larger software decision on, on the part of their companies. They're extremely well involved, informed. They stay anonymous for a very long time before they ever make themselves known to us, right? I think the last stat I read was like 70% of the journey is done before they ever say like, hey, my name's Tracy. And so what that means is I no longer think of it as I need to modernize my marketing team. I think of it as I need to work with my go-to-market leadership colleagues, CRO, head of customer success. Okay. And and what do we need to do to transform our go-to-market modernization so that the buyer has a seamless experience, you know, because yeah. the buyer is approaching us. They don't care who they're talking to, marketing or sales or CSM or whatever. They just know that they have a need for information. They need to get that itch scratched in a professional way, in a rapid way. And so we really need to set up our teams to be there in the moment when the buyer wants to say, hey, I'm ready to talk mm-hmm. and then make a bunch of information readily available in many, many ways for when they are still anonymous. And like, we can go a lot more into it, but that's the way that I think about it today. So would you suggest that, you know, today's B2B CMO or uh, marketing leader modify, alter, change the way that their marketing team is structured? You know, I've heard argument for, you know, aligning marketing to each phase of the, the journey. So somebody focuses on top of funnel, somebody focuses on conversions to sales. I've also heard, you know, looking at, being industry specific so that you know we can focus on that vertical. What have you seen, if any, shifts in the way that we structure our marketing teams? And, and maybe that's even a skill set implication. It's a great question. And almost every marketing team that I have worked with, no matter the company size, doesn't matter if it's 50 people or 500 people or 5,000 people, there are silos in marketing. Mm-hmm. And Silos are never good, right? <laughs> Information gets trapped, you know, blame, the blame game happens, you're inefficient, et cetera. So the very first thing that I try and do when I come into a company is really assess how are things flowing today and where are the silos so that we can break down those silos. And one of the ways that I do that is this concept that I learned about from a colleague at IDC, actually. We were talking about kind of talent development and we were brainstorming and I said, you know, it's almost like People in a team today and, and in the past, they have their skill set, right? It might be uh, search engine optimization for mm-hmm. top of funnel. It might be competitive analysis for helping sales convert. Um, it might be, you know, short form uh, or short form content, long form content, web development, whatever. Yep. And those people are really deep in what they know, but they really don't know anything about what's going on to the right and to the left of them 
in their you know collective workflow. And so I really like to think about marketers today as needing to be capital T-shaped, where they have their expertise, but they have exposure to the other elements of marketing. I'll give you a good example. Okay. In my last company, the SEO manager, who's an absolute rock star expert in increasing our rankings for search engine optimized leads and our competitive analyst, they kind of knew each other because they, you know, had a happy hour together, but they weren't working together. <laughs> right. And I said, would you guys just go in a room and teach each other what you do? Cause I'm pretty sure you're going to find things and what each other does. It's going to make us better. And sure enough, it's become this thing where now every month they're reviewing what they're doing. Yeah. Cause of course, you know, Hadassah, the SEO leader is seeing things that Steve, you know, the head of competitive needs to know and vice versa. Okay. You know, taking the time to facilitate that kind of action takes more time, you know, for the modern CMO. But I think it's really, really critical. And you can, you know, really institute different processes and kind of cross-functional learning workshops in your team and even rotational assignments and things like that to create that capital T. And guess what? You know, the marketers love it because they want to advance in their careers and not be pigeonholed in a silo. And uh, I find that works pretty well. Yeah. It sounds like this move to more of a diverse skill set instead of being a super, super specialist. So I'm curious if we expand that diversity concept out, how does that play out? Because I know the demographics for most uh, organizations' customer base is changing. And I keep hearing about diversity, not only of skill set, which you, you alluded to and talked about, but just the demographic makeup of your team, how important has that become? How are you seeing that change? Uh, give me your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, it, I think the demographic makeup of a team is super important now because we need to look like our customers look, right? Mm-hmm. So if you just take, take apart this in multiple dimensions, there's a generational thing happening, right? Where the millennials that we used to kind of joke about coming up through, they're in decision-making positions yeah. now, right? Uh-huh. Millennials are in their mid-30s. A lot of them have checkbooks now. They are digitally native, right? So we need to make sure we have the skill sets in our teams to respond to that way of buying. They also consume content differently, right? They don't want to wait behind a, a, a lead gate to get at a demo or consume a piece of content. So we have to really make a lot of our information kind of free to the world and promote it in channels where we think our buyers are going to be. The only way you're going to do that is when you have diversity in your team. And that's, you know, in every way that you can talk about diversity. And, you know, we look in, in you know, I'm looking at you, Jeff. I'm a white woman. You're a black guy. Like, People, companies want us as their leaders. They believe that we are going to bring in that diversity of leadership. And, you know, McKinsey and Harvard Business Review and others, and I've been studying this through my Women in Revenue Org, it is proven that having a diverse leadership team and diversity in every way you can think of across your company will lead to better revenue performance and better customer relationships. So I think we have to be very conscious about who we hire and what we do to make them feel welcome in our organizations. And, you know, we know there's a lot of DEI efforts that are going on, but it's something that I'm really seeking to do in my hiring pool and, and also just discovering what people are good at. Like, I'll give you one super fun example. We hired a guy in New York to join our content team. Okay. And getting to know Anthony found out that he was doing spoken word poetry and, and rapped and, you know, it was in a rap group and other stuff. And it was like, wait, what? <laughs> Can you do that at work? And he was like, oh, nobody's ever asked me that before. Like in 35 years, no one's ever asked me to actually rap at 
as part of my job. Right. I was like, I'm like, well, we have a product launch coming up. Can you do something that would be interesting for that launch? And he put together this 90 second, really awesome, highly relevant rap set to a really cool video that he pieced together. And we used that to promote the product and people loved it. You know, it was, there was an entertainment factor, but it was also informational. Yeah highly engaging. And, you know, that sort of thing is what you get when you find out from people what their side jobs are. But maybe you even maybe next time, I'll actually advertise for that. Like I <laughs> didn't have it in the job profile. It was a lucky coincidence. Yeah. It's like, do you rap? Be a part of our content. Team. <laughs> <laughs> you get to go yeah. to the front of the line. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I love that. And that's actually a pretty cool example of, like you said, people having different experiences and bringing that that uniqueness to the role. You said something that I, I want to dig into a little bit more because I have found in whether I'd be doing keynotes or talking to senior leaders, a lot of inertia around that this true transformation that happens. A lot of people want to do band-aids and that sort of thing. But you talked about this whole millennial buyer. And I think for a lot of more senior leaders who rightfully so have earned their place at the table, have a ton of history, are very, very good at what they do. I think sometimes we minimize the need to have more junior folks in the room or looking at shifting the way that we communicate because a lot of us are missing the the point. Like you said, millennials are in the buying groups now and making decisions. So help a senior leader that may have a little inertia around like, you know, for instance, like not gating content, like how do we have to think about that in order to really be able to yeah. move deals and really do what we do as marketers? I can tell you a couple of things I've tried. I worked in a company once where we had a group of sales of AEs, account executives that were extremely experienced, very tenured enterprise, you know, seven figure deal type people who basically would say like, I'm not going to work in Salesforce. I'm not, I don't even know how to turn it on. I'm not going to put anything in there. I have everything like in my head, on a sheet, in a spreadsheet of my own, et cetera. I'm not even going to work in the systems. Screw you people. I don't care if you're trying to be modern and capture my activity. And, you know, that just doesn't work, right? First of all, so it's a sales leadership problem. But one of the ways that I have worked to overcome that in partnership with sales leadership is really buddy up the, you know, buddy up the millennial and the super experienced person to kind of cross train because guess what, you know, that the folks that are in their twenties today, they don't have, they don't know how to talk to somebody about a seven figure deal for God's sake, right? They don't have the credibility or the, any of the experience behind them to do that. So if you can get a good buddy system going, that can be effective. It can be challenging to establish credibility with that more experienced person. So sometimes you got to kind of finagle your way into that. I've figured out a way to diplomatically make that work, but that's an example of something that you can do. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's really important because to your point, I think, you know, now or in the next coming few years, we're going to have, I think, four generations in the workplace and it's difficult because they all have very different mindsets, very different worldviews, very different experiences. But I think the organizations, specifically marketing organizations that can tap into all four of those are going to win because you truly have a strategic advantage because you have the digital nativeness of, you know, the twenties, the really young folks, and you have the senior leader that has experience in seeing, you know, the world go through cycles and has all this credibility. I think that's another element of when you think about alignment that maybe we don't talk enough about is how do you align all these generations and take the best of all of what they have. And, you know, it's really interesting. You mentioned social media, like TikTok is starting to become a thing in B2B marketing. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I look at TikTok for like dance moves and cooking classes right. and like makeup tips, right? And But it's a thing, right? It really is a thing. So 
I think we need to embrace that and start testing, right? We need to have that testing mindset um, and, and kind of see what works. And we need people like Anthony on my team, you know, who's can build the content that would actually be appropriate. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question that I get all the time and I'm, I'm selfishly want your answer so I can give people a more informed answer. Uh, I've kind of been like, I'm on the fence. So question I get all the time is SDRs. Who should they report to marketing and sales? Want to get your opinion. Oh my God. I'm so passionate about this topic. I'm really glad you asked (laughs) me about it. I knew you would have an answer to this. I have a very strong point of view. Now um, I'll explain my point of view in a minute Okay. before establishing, I'm going to argue both sides and then I'll tell you what I, what I really think because so I've, I have had the opportunity to manage the SDR, be responsible for that function in four companies now. So I'm kind of already telling you that I think it should belong in marketing. But let me tell you why it's often in sales. SDRs are, I think, one of the most challenging talent groups to recruit and manage. I like to think of them as a moving walkway of talent. And I always get this image in my head of O'Hare Airport when you're going between the terminals. <laughs> There's that tube with the neon, right? I know exactly what you're like, talking about. Yeah, I, know, I know you do. You live there. Yep. And, you know, SDRs are getting on one end of that walkway and they're riding to the other end. And that other end might be 14, 18 months in time before they're like, okay, I'm done. I want to be an AE. Most of the time, that's how it goes. And because that moving walkway of talent has an expiration date in the job, you know, we have to be very conscious of their career development. Now, most of them want to be AEs, not all, but most. I've had them go into marketing ops jobs, to CSM jobs, but most of them want to become an AE. And so it sort of makes sense that they would be in the sales department, right? They're going to get nurtured. They're going to get taught how to be an AE. Then they graduate and they move into AE role. The problem is, and the reason that four times I have managed this function, and a, and a couple of those times when I joined the company, it was in sales, and the sales leaders basically said to me, like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with the moving walkway of talent. I don't want to deal with the constant recruiting and training. And I certainly don't want to deal with the process. And we all know that sales development is right in the middle of all the marketing and sales processes, right? They, right. The leads need to get routed correctly. There's a whole thing about developing sequences. There's KPIs that they need to meet. And that is a pain in the butt for any sales leader to manage while they are also managing AEs that are trying to close deals. Yep. And I have this conversation all the time with my husband, who's a CRO in a tech company, and Randall very much feels the same way. Now, it does work for sales in his company, but he has a very process-oriented manager. So I think you got to take a hard look at your organization and say, what executive has the most understanding about the role? can make sure that there's fidelity for the processes so that we can track what's happening with the leads Mm -hmm. so that we can enforce speed to lead. I was just talking to a company the other day where they were routing all the inbound leads to AEs and having SDRs do outbound only. And guess what? The AEs had very spotty performance on following up on leads. Uh, Guess why? Because they're chasing deals. They don't want to call back a trade show lead. So it's like, what are you people doing? (laughs) This makes no (laughs) sense. So I'm very passionate about it being part of marketing. I think that a good marketing leader can align themselves very tightly with sales and make sure that that SDR team that sits in the middle between sales and marketing is very well exposed to all of the processes. And in fact, my last company, Elation, my SDR leader, Steve Dodsworth, who's fabulous, had never worked in a marketing team before. He'd only ever worked in sales. Okay. And so he was a little like, I don't know, Tracy, this feels weird to me. I'm like, let's give it a shot. And after a couple of months, he was like, I had no idea 
all of the things that marketing was doing. And now I understand why you always wanted me to run this process, that process, whatever process. And yep. so, you know, you just get such a better feedback loop, et cetera. The caveat to all of this is you really do need to work on that career pathing and, okay. you know, help this, help the SDRC what they need to achieve in order to move into an AE role if it's appropriate in that company. Yeah, because I assume that most folks are not coming in to be BDRs or SERs to, to transition no. to marketing. Like, I mean, that's not... no, they don't want to do that for yeah. very long. So you got to set up really good milestones and, and you know, and you need a good re- recruiting pool also. You know, if you think yeah. about this moving walkway, it's unlike AEs where, you know, you say, okay, I need 10 AEs. They're going to ramp in a certain time and then they're just going to perform and stick around as long as they're making money. Yep. Those SDRs, they, they're going to, they have an expiration date. So you've got to constantly be hiring. And that's where organizations like SV Academy come in, which I know you know about. Yeah. And I would encourage your listeners to check them out. SV Academy has a training program for SDRs, and then you can hire out of that training program into your company. People that are SDR ready, they just don't know your company. So, you know, the good part is you get to, they're already taught, you know, kind of the skills of the job, and then they need to learn your business. They ramp faster. I love that. And we'll link that we'll link that in the show notes so people want to follow up and get more information about SV Academy, they can they can find it pretty easily. One of the things I that I continue to hear about, and, and just to give you a little context, the, I have always been passionate about making sure that this sort of information is is talked about across industries. I think mm-hmm. when it comes to transformation, obviously tech gets a lot of uh, the headlines because you guys are stereotypically in the forefront, but you have other industries that they're in a different stage in their transformation mm-hmm. journey. So one of the things I keep wanted to keep top of mind is as we kind of transition to this kind of omni-channel marketing uh, ecosystem, you know, again, some companies have done this very well. There are others that are just trying to figure this out. One of the things that I want to talk about is how do you look at demand gen differently in an organization that is not maybe quite as savvy around omni-channel? And specifically, I think there is a struggle between doing a lot of things that you might not stereotypically be able to track or find a hard ROI on. But nowadays, if you don't do them, you are not at the place where your customers are at the beginning of their journey. I want to get your thoughts as a CMO, and I would assume probably very data-driven because you're working in a tech organization. How do you kind of think through these kind of, and I'm not, I don't want to call them not ROI, but hard to track activities that we know contribute to overall like top of funnel or whatnot. Yeah, it's a good point. The first thing that I would do if I was in a room with executives that I was trying, you know, that were not in an industry that, you know, just kind of knew off the top of their head, you know, all of the omni, you know, even saying omni channel might be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I turn the channel on my television. Is right. that what you're talking about? Every channel. Right, like, yeah, right, right. <laughs> so I would first do some education to them about what we know about how buyers buy. And I would use analogies about how I believe they probably are buying products or finding out about products in their personal lives. Right. And, you know, most of them are probably doing, like, say, somebody's buying a car, they're going to do some internet research. They are probably going to go do a test drive. Maybe if they're really hardcore, they're going to read articles in car and driver or reviews online. Like all of those things are true about other products too, whether they be medical devices or, you know, banking products or whatever the case may be. So draw those analogies so that they can kind of first understand like, oh yeah. And I saw, you know, a television ad and I saw a billboard ad and I saw something on TikTok and I, or my daughter showed me something on TikTok or I saw a bus station or, you know, a taxi cab wrap or whatever. 
Yeah. So I kind of start there. Like, where is it that you see all these things? Um, another good conversation to have, I, I led a workshop with my e-staff once, which is how do you know that a company is hot? And got them all to kind of brainstorm and say, like, how did they know that a brand was hot? And we used consumer brands to start. And they had all kinds of ideas. Like, I see their billboards everywhere. I hear their radio ads on television. You know, when I do a search, their thing comes up first. And it's like, okay. So all of those things are part of the recipe. I like to think of it as a recipe. And some components of that recipe are very easy to show return on and others are not. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to trust me that the recipe works. And so let's do a kind of test and refine motion. So if somebody's really nervous about, I don't know, funding a, a, an airport advertising campaign or something like that, mm-hmm. what I would recommend is, hey, let's start small. And I'll, I'll give you an example. We are at Alation last summer. Um, we were doing their big conference called Snowflake Summit in Las Vegas. And, you know, we had the classic large booth where, of course, we can track, you know, a scan leading to something. And, yeah. you know, the 300K that we spent on that booth, we can pretty much tell a return on opportunity later. We surrounded it with things that were highly untrackable. Like we did advertising in the Las Vegas airport. We had some billboards on the strip. We did a big party at town nightclub with sponsors and, um, and just blew it up, invited everybody. Now I can't tell you an exact correlation between someone coming to the party and an opportunity, but I sure can tell you that 10 people from account Acme, let's call it, came to the party. Four of them came to the booth and an opportunity happened. And we know from word of mouth that they all said, my God, you guys are everywhere at this show, right? Yeah. So being able to tell that story helps the team understand that there is a recipe that goes with this and being really buzzy in a situation like that Mm -hmm. heavily increased our chances to get more booth traffic. And we knew how much booth traffic we could expect from past experience. So let's pretend, you know, we thought we'd get 10,000 visitors. Well, we ended up with 30,000 visitors. Well, why is that? It's not because we had a booth. It's because we did all this other buzzy stuff. So, you know, that's just one example of, of many that I can think of um, to try and show that a recipe really works. I love that. So transitioning a little bit about looking at the overall revenue engine, I've talked many times about advocating that we have like po- regular pipeline meetings. I think one of, yes. the, one of the, the easiest ways beyond just sitting down and having a conversation is having a regular cadence of revenue, I'm sorry, pipeline yes. meetings across sales, marketing, customer success, if you have them. I'm curious from, from a marketing leader's perspective, what metrics should we be looking at that should be prioritized to evaluate the health of the revenue engine that we that we're currently operating in, because I, I hear a lot of folks are like, "How do I step into an organization and assess how things are working?" And so I'm just curious from you, if you're sitting in that meeting as you know a CMO, what metrics are you looking to share with your colleagues that that are going to be relevant to them so that they get how you're working? Because I you know there's some deeper kind of metrics that probably are more applicable or more relevant for marketing, uh, and that you're probably talking to your team about. But what would you talk about in that kind of cross functional meeting? Yeah, so. I always start with pipeline, Jeff, because that is the most important metric, I believe, to keep your credibility with sales really high. Okay. 
if you show up to a meeting with sales and talk about how many leads you generated, they're going to roll their eyes because some of those leads are not going to be leads that they think are quality. Can we it's repeat all that, please? Seen- <laughs> <laughs> no one cares about your 10,000 leads. <laughs> at least sales leadership doesn't. <laughs> they do not care at all. And in fact, you are setting yourself up for attack and hearing those leads are crap. And then you're, where do you go? So starting with pipeline, I think is the most important thing. And what I like to look at is kind of four major columns, let's call it, of where new logo pipeline is coming from marketing inbound, which is all of the things we've been talking about, Uh you know, driven by paid search by social driven by events and so on. SDR driven outbound, which is often has an account based air cover to it. Partner sourced. You know, most of us have some sort of alliance team that is going through a partner channel and and really trying to get those partners to refer us business and then sales themselves. And guess what? You know, you and I both know Jill Rowley. She has a great term called being drunk on inbound. A lot of AEs in tech have become very drunk on inbound leads and don't know how to prospect anymore. And prospecting is coming back. So I like to look at those four columns. Okay. And I also like to look at and kind of the percentage across in my last company marketing um, was delivering 70% of the pipeline between marketing inbound and SDR outbound, which is very high, higher than I've been responsible for before. Okay. Sales was delivering around 20, 25% and then partners was eight to 10%, which really is an area that needed growth because it converts so highly to deal. In addition to that, I like to look at current quarter coverage and then the future quarter coverage and you know are we building depending on the length of the sales cycle mm-hmm. you know do we have enough for this quarter do we have enough for next quarter and the quarter after and then finally i like to look at the distribution of that pipeline across regions because you might have oh, a super hot region that's got plenty but you have somebody else who's starving right so you also might be hiring rapidly and needing to do some warm up campaigns for a territory I'll tell you one last thing that I introduced, which wasn't super popular with the sales leaders, but I introduced the notion of looking at aging pipeline. And what does that mean? So an SDR sent an AE, a sales qualified lead to accept or not, the sales person accepted it, and then it didn't get touched for 30 days. So that is called aging pipeline. And we track it. And there might be a hundred or more of those opportunities sitting there that nobody has touched in a month. Like, what's up with that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, we gave you this fuel. What's happening to it? Right. So those are sort of the composition of things that I think are really important to take a look at. I really like that. I had not heard of the aging pipeline metric. And it's interesting because especially if you are working toward getting higher quality leads over to sales and you're trying to establish this rapport. And you've shown that you're doing that, but your salespeople are still sitting on them. It's a conversation to have because there may be some residual, like we still don't trust marketing leads and we still don't trust what they're giving us. So I, yeah, I had not heard that before. I really like that. Yeah, it's a new one. Um, and, and it's also a symptom of not having enough salespeople. Okay. That's part of the conclusion because, you know, if I put so much food on your plate and you think it's quality and you can't get to it all, yeah. you know, okay, maybe you don't need as many. And the thing that we found was 
at my last company, our AEs on average had 32 open opportunities going at any one time. That's a lot for enterprise deals. And our CRO wanted to get it closer to like 22. So we were constantly trying to calibrate, you know, feast and famine and, you know, nobody was starving. Everybody had more than they could work on. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's a really, it's a really important one. And, you know, it shows you as the CMO leader and the sales leaders accountability also, right? Like when are you ever in a meeting as a CMO where you're able to say like, yo, like here's the food, you're not eating it. I'm not going to keep spending money until this gets consumed, right? right? And it gives you some leverage because, you know, salespeople always want more. And I think it also gives sales leaders an opportunity if if they want to argue to the CEO or CFO or senior leadership that they need more salespeople. That is a metric you can say like, look, we've optimized as much as possible. Salespeople, you know, our salespeople are doing what they're supposed to do. We just have all this aging pipeline. We don't have enough butts and seats to get to butts and car or wherever (laughs) wherever they are. Capacity. It's a great capacity argument. And it's also the opportunity to say, hey, look, there's a hundred plus of these. Maybe they shouldn't have been accepted. Like, take a look. Yeah. Like, you thought they were worthy. If they're not worthy, like, kick them back. And, you know, we put them into a nurture or whatever. But at my last company, every company I've worked for, we've had pretty high bar for what makes it into opportunity. We should have a high bar. Yeah. You don't want your salespeople wasting their time on stuff. It's the only thing they can control. My husband says that all the time. Salespeople can only control their time. They can't control anything else. It's true. So... So thoughts on another topic that is near and dear to me, uh, marketing compensation. This is always very uncomfortable when I talk to marketing people about this. So we all know, and you talk about this in your book, that at the end of the day, alignment between sales and marketing is the CEO's issue, responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of that really bubbles up to incentives and and how Mm -hmm. you incentivize those on the team. And, And I was on a podcast, this is years ago, it was a sales podcast, and I was sharing with the audience that historically marketing has operated as a cost center. And the host, Will Barron, that's his name. It's the uh, Salesman Podcast. This is years ago. And he was like, what? What do you mean? I said, well, let me give you a little secret that marketers don't want you to know. We historically, and it depends on the organization, right? Really weren't evaluated at the, at the end of the year of like overall like budget ROI. It was just like, either you spend it or you lose it. And he was just shocked that that was the way we looked at it. And I said, a lot of you know, executive CEOs look at marketing as the cost creating revenue, right? It's almost like cost of goods sold versus like actually looking at marketing uh, as a function that we want to look at overall ROI. And so what I talked about was is that, you know, marketing really should have their variable compensation tied to a revenue goal, which, you know, is still, I don't see being widely done, but I wanted to get your opinion on what that looks mm-hmm. like from your end. Yeah. I mean, amen. First of all, marketing should be tied to real numbers that are not MQLs. Um, Minimally, our variable comp should be tied to pipeline, ultimately to revenue. But pipeline, I like as kind of the core one. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the time, my variable pay is a combination of quarterly pipeline delivery and then annual revenue accomplishment. Okay. On my teams, I require variable has to be tied to pipeline. And it doesn't matter who you are. You could be a competitive analyst. You need to be tied to us making our pipeline number. And then that just leads to smart decisions. It allows people that are in the seat where they are spending millions of dollars. And, you know, in a company like Galatian at a hundred million in revenue, it's millions of dollars. Yeah. It's a big you know, deal. Every month in things like paid search alone. And, you know, that team is very much incented by 
what is converting to pipeline and how can we as a team get more efficient so that we are not a cost center? Like, you know, that famous CAC ratio and the rule of 40, all those metrics that people in SaaS companies get really good at knowing. We need to get the cost of sale down as much as possible, which means we need to be super efficient, which means we need to be constantly testing. We need to be only investing in things that are leading to pipeline and, you know, really constantly tracking. I think that's a smart way to look at it. I think for an organization that has not kind of looked at or explored this changing markings compensation, maybe that that first one is tying it to pipeline versus, you know, hardcore revenue numbers based on a lot of different factors. Because I think for for most organizations, it is a cultural shift totally. that, that marketing is just not used to. They're not comfortable with because the argument comes always comes back. Well, we're, we're not actually in charge of sales. We're not, you know, we can't Yeah, I can't deals. control that. I mean, this is your typical marketer that like, let's say is running the trade show is going to say, well, I can't control what happens. All I can do is get people into the booth and get a bunch of scans, but I cannot control what comes after that. Right. And it's like, hang on a second. Yes, you can, right? Yes. <laughs> like you got to make sure that the processes are rolling fast. You got to make sure they're analyzing what actually gets ingested, that you're looking at what turns into opportunity and then tracing back. So the next time we get more of those people and less of the other people and, you know, that kind of thing. And I feel that, that accountability really forces a marketer to look at like that post event analysis. Did it work? And I also yes. think it forces them to think more proactively of like, how do we evaluate that on the back end? What things do we need to be put in place to follow up? Like all that sort of thing versus just thinking on the front end of like, we got to get a booth. We got to get the biggest one, da, 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 da. And then when we're done, we're done. And then sales can do whatever. There's one other thing I want to add to this, which is we know that in B2B, it's never one person who does one booth scan that leads to one opportunity that leads to one deal. It's 29 people doing 40 different things. And marketing has got to stitch that together so that at the account level, the AE understands the composition of everything that's going on, all the people that are interacting so yeah. that they can have more conversations and get multi-threaded in a deal, which we all know is going to lead to bigger deals, better outcomes, faster deal cycles, and so on. And it's a really hard thing to do to stitch that all together. Yeah. And especially in very large deals, you know, in my last couple of companies, deal cycles were anywhere from six to nine months. And on average, we were interacting with 40 people, maybe. And it's very lazy to say, oh, the very first lead is the one that gets all the attribution and is the only one the AE pays attention to. Like we have got to stitch it all together using technology, using good process, uh, you know, to feed the AE as much of that. What's the right word? Kaleidoscope of information so that they can do, you know, a better job and be more informed. Yeah. One last question. And then I want to shift over to women in revenue because I want to make sure we spend some time uh, talking about the organization, what you guys are doing. You spark something in your response is how does a marketing leader increase visibility for the sales rep of what is happening upstream, what is happening outside of what they're doing? To your point, I think that's really where you're able to pull those uh, deep account in insights of like, you know, we, you know, we realized that you came to a booth and you talked to Jeff and you had a great conversation about XYZ. I wanted to share this article with you and, and figure out whether or not you got your an questions answered or whatever that conversation looks like. How do you increase that visibility? whether it be through strategy, through tech, how would you start that process? Yeah, I've tried it a bunch of different ways because let's face it, you know, once sales is in an op and they're chasing that op, it's very hard to get their attention on other things. 
you know, I have a joke that salespeople are single celled organisms that chase revenue <laughs> and they have to be right. Yeah. They have to be laser focused. And so for you to be just like noise in their ear, um, is hard. So what I experimented with, I've experienced with a lot of things, internal newsletters, alerts and CRM. Hey, a new person came in, whatever. The best way that I have found is at a regional level to have the SDR manager and a field marketer be in lockstep with that regional manager, understanding the ops that are being worked in that region. So let's okay. say you've got your Eastern region and there's 20 AEs and you've got a couple field marketers and your SDR manager and a bunch of SDRs under that person. And that SDR manager and those field marketers need to be really locked in with that regional leader, usually an SVP or maybe a sales regional director mm-hmm. on what's happening with the business in their region and call to their attention. And there's usually weekly meetings and things like that. Call to the AE's attention. You know, hey, Jeff, did you know at Acme, we have now developed five other people that have been interacting with us in these other things. It's all in your CRM. Go look at it, right? It's a lot of like, you know, lead the horse to water. And you may say, oh, Tracy, that's such a pain in the butt. Like the AE is a grown up. They should be able to find that on their own. Every sales rep I've ever known, it's just, it doesn't work that way. You know, you've got to really kind of almost hand curate some of it for them. And then that habit develops and then you get a way better outcome. And like, wouldn't, doesn't that make us all successful, right? If Jeff gets fed that information, he's going to multi-thread his conversations. He's going to close that deal faster and yay, you know, marketing added value. Yeah. And, and actually as you, you, you took me back to my rep days when I was actually, uh, what is it? Boots on the ground. Cause we always got coached to pre-call plan. And you especially do it when, when the, when your manager was in the car with you, but you know, what you found was you did have deeper, richer conversations that move the needle, but you get so like caught up in like, I got to see this person today. I got to see this person today. And I'm calling myself out, right? Like I would do kind of like a superficial, like, oh, okay. I talked to them last week about this, but I really wouldn't do the analysis to not always. Uh, to really think about the, the the whole account, like did I talk to this person? What did they say? Can I share that information? I talked to somebody in the region about this, but that is truly where you you really have more meaningful connections and conversations that move the conversation closer to close. So, and did you find you know as a rep when you were working an opportunity and you got introduced to additional people, yeah, that you were often really adding value to them because they might not even know each other. Oh, hundred percent. <laughs> Hundred percent, and it sounds so simple that you, you know, I call it like the sphere of influence. Where I was really able to step out and and stitch all the relationships together. It's like, for instance, you know, when I come from healthcare sales, we were having a challenge, and I remember this: we were having a challenge with uh, a physician. Not, I think their patients weren't getting like full reimbursement, or they were having issues like getting using one of the copay cards, whatnot. And I went around to the pharmacies in that area and figured out what the issue was. And he would not have had that visibility of figuring out. He just kept getting complaints and he didn't know why it was happening. And so I did the due diligence to say like, look, I have a doctor in the region. They're having some issues. And we found out like, oh, we didn't know X, Y, Z. And I connected them with our like pharmacy benefits people and they had the conversation and it was resolved. But it's that sort of thing, which is outside of quote unquote selling my product. That right. became the value add. And then, you know, our relationship, you know, really got stronger. And oh, yeah. You were like trust. his guy forever after that. Right. Because to him, he <laughs> was like, oh, you did all that. And, you know, none of it was, I mean, it was related to product, but I wasn't pushing product. Right. You know right, what I mean? Right. So, totally. Yeah. But totally. anyway, so I want to hear about women in revenue. I've heard really, really great things. So let our, our listeners know if they are a woman in revenue or they want to know more about women in revenue, what the organization what is. is and what it is. Yep. So I'm drinking from the cup right now. Oh, it's full advertising. Women you are revenue. a true um, marketer. 
So uh, <laughs> Women in Revenue is a nonprofit organization that is completely free to join. You can find it at womeninrevenue.org. And any female or female identifying people can join the organization. The purpose is to provide mentorship and education and networking for women in revenue roles, which we define as all the go-to-market roles, sales, okay. marketing, customer success. We founded, uh, there's about a dozen of us that founded the organization four years ago, going on five now, because we were looking around and kind of saying like, where are all the women? This is crazy. Like we're in this very male dominated environment. Yeah. You know, we're seeing our sisters in engineering starting to get a lot more active with STEM jobs and, or, you know, STEM organizations and girls who code and things like that. But what about this? And like sales is a great career. You can make a lot of money and, you know, support your family. And, you know, it's very enriching and marketing and customer success are, are fabulous careers. So fast forward to today, there's almost 7,000 members. Most are in North America, um, although we're starting to get interests from other countries. We have, uh, we're funded by generous sponsors that are typically tech companies and recruiting firms that want access to our audience, but we also have some private investment. And our mentor program is really the, the heart of it all. We do one to one, we do one to many, we do flash mentorship. We have a very, very active Slack community where people are trading information on all sorts of things, you know, yeah. budgeting, forecasting techniques, um, career advice, and so on. So I'm really proud of it. It's a great organization. About half the members are in the first 10 years of their career, and the other half are kind of directors and VPs. So okay. it's a nice blend. And, you know, we've got major pockets. In fact, the the most members are in New York now, even though this started in the Bay Area. There's a bunch of people in Austin, Texas. There's some in Washington, D.C. There's a bunch in Chicago. There's kind of all over the country. Nice. And if someone's interested in joining or learning more, repeat the website really quick. I think you said it. Womeninrevenue.org. And you can sign up right there. Cool. So two last things, and then I'll let you get on your way. Because you wrote Align to Achieve, I just wanted to share, I want you to share for a marketing leader that is looking to improve their relationship with sales. What are some kind of last minute tips, tricks, or thoughts that you would want to share with them of how to start that process? The first thing is to really get a realistic understanding of sales sentiment towards marketing if you're taking a new job. And in almost every company that I have worked for, sales sentiment was not that great. You know, in fact, I write about this in the book, um, my very first CMO gig at a company called MarkLogic, there were four divisional sales VPs. I'd met the CRO and I thought I'll be fine with him, but I didn't meet the leaders of the four verticals. There's public sector and media and FinServe and so on. They hated marketing, Jeff. And, you know, the reason they hated marketing was the CEO had chewed up and spit out four marketing leaders in two and a half years. Oh. And so, you know, I don't know if you know the military term FNG. No. It, well, it stands for effing new guy or gal. Oh, okay. I got it. Um, <laughs> it's okay. So, right. <laughs> and so I was that to them. You know, marketing had not delivered anything that helped them. And, you know, I go to meet them. And this is a true story. There are four of them sitting there. I walk over, you know, bubbly. Hey, I'm really happy to meet you all. And, you know, the alpha of the group who ran public sector, which was the biggest or part of the org, he just kind of looked at me and looked away and then like did that motion with his hand, like go away. Wow. Yeah. I mean that, you know, so that's an extreme example uh, of what it can be like. 
most of the time they just won't even talk to you um, or just think you're irrelevant. Right. I find that or they're, or they'll pretend they'll have this like faux act like, Oh yeah, marketing is very important. And then they won't return your phone calls. Yeah. So, you know, my strategy is to essentially say, I need to learn as much as possible about the sales process and about what's not working. Can I come listen to your meetings? I'm not going to talk. Just want to come and listen and go crash, right? Go to their forecast calls, start talking to individual sales reps about what's working and not working. Go sit, you know, if there's a bullpen, go sit with the SDRs, go sit with AEs that are working the phones, work some leads, like really do that at the beginning of your tenure. And you will uncover lots of things that almost always there's going to be some low hanging fruit that can be fixed pretty fast. There's usually lead routing problems. There's usually disagreement on what makes an opportunity, things of that nature, and really work on alleviating some of that pain very quickly. And then getting to the heart of, you know, what can marketing do to make sales easier and and then communicating back to them what you're going to do in a very credible way. Funny story, another funny story (laughs) that you haven't heard. So that guy that ran public sector and like brushed me away, he's my husband now. That is, <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Isn't that, that no, awesome? See, that's true. Like you were living sales and marketing yes. alignment in your house. <laughs> yes. Yes. And we've learned a lot from each other. And I mean, what yeah. he did to me was horribly rude, but I get yeah. it. Like, you know, when marketing had just been a total annoyance. And so my approach in that situation was to say like, seriously, people, this is how you're going to treat me. Like, Otherwise, you're going to meet number six in like six months. So I promise that if you expose me to what is not working well, that I'm going to work to fix it. But you got to talk to me. And, you know, that kind of shamed them into having a conversation. Yeah. I love that. Well, Tracy Eiler, I always love talking to you. I learned so much. I mean, we literally could probably be on this podcast for another hour. Uh, but I, know, I know people are like, and eh, Jeff Davis, I'm done. But uh, <laughs> super helpful, great insights. I think all, not only marketing leaders, I think, you know, all revenue leaders will get something from our conversation. Last but not least, where can people find you on social before we close out? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place. I'm a little concerned about Twitter these days. Um, well, so that's LinkedIn a, that's is another podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but LinkedIn is absolutely the best place. Tracy Eiler, E I L E R, and uh, you can find me there. Awesome. Well, Tracy, thank you for your time. Hope to have you on the podcast again. Hey, yeah, I really appreciate the the uh, invitation, Jeff. Absolutely. Have a great day. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Rev Engine Podcast. I hope today's episode provided you with some actionable insights that will help you begin the process of transforming your organization to a high-performing revenue engine. If you found today's episode valuable, we ask that you support the show's growth in three ways. First, share the episode with your friends and colleagues. Second, follow me on social media at Meet Jeff Davis on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, give us feedback on who you'd like to see on the show next. That's all for this episode. We look forward to having you join us next time where we continue the conversation on how to build a high-performing revenue engine.